This podcast is produced by Secure World Foundation, an endowed private operating foundation that promotes cooperative solutions for space sustainability and the peaceful uses of outer space. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. For more information, please visit swfound.org. So welcome, everybody. Um, First, I just want to say thank you um, to all of you for joining us today uh, for what is sure to be a very interesting discussion. My name is Tiffany Chow. I'm a project manager with the DC office of Secure World Foundation, and I head up our congressional outreach efforts. For those of you who are not familiar with us, Secure World Foundation is a private operating foundation dedicated to promoting cooperative solutions to space sustainability. Space sustainability is all about ensuring that we can continue to use space in the long term for all of the wonderful benefits that it affords us. Whether that's from supporting national security missions, to providing GPS and communications, or to enabling uh, environmental monitoring that uh, gives us weather forecasts, disaster monitoring, or agricultural planning. However, as more and more uses are discovered and taken advantage of in space, it grows more congested, contested, and competitive. The United States, along with many other nations, has recognized this changing reality in the space environment and the various threats to space sustainability that come with it, such as orbital debris, the potential for collisions, and radio frequency interference, just to name a few. As a result, there are several international initiatives currently ongoing to discuss solutions to these threats and broader space sustainability issues. The most notable one is the proposed draft International Code of Conduct for outer space activities, but there are several other international conversations ongoing right now, such as in the group of governmental experts on transparency and confidence building measures for space, and in the long-term sustainability working group at the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Like the Code of Conduct, these initiatives are non-binding in nature. Their goal is not to produce a legal or binding treaty, but rather to facilitate dialogue and shape norms for responsible behavior in space with the ultimate intent of enhancing safety and reducing misperception and mistrust. International cooperation and dialogue is necessary for space sustainability because any one actor can jeopardize, whether intentionally or unintentionally, everyone else's ability to operate safely and affordably in space. And in addition to addressing existing threats, international cooperation and dialogue can help usher in exciting new technologies that are currently being developed and can contribute to space sustainability, such as on-orbit servicing and active debris removal. The United States has always played a very critical role in shaping norms for the international community, in laying down rules of the road and identifying what constitutes right and wrong in various domains. This country's long and successful history in space means we have developed the best standards for responsible and safe space operations. Unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, it's not enough that the U.S. alone behaves safely and responsibly in space. It's equally as important that others are adhering to and following those same best practices, especially emerging and new space players. So exporting those homegrown norms of responsible behavior to others is vital to keeping space safe and sustainable in the long run. And a critical element of our leadership role in shaping norms internationally is making sure that we consult those sectors at home that are most active in space so that we might learn from their expertise. Um, And that would be namely the defense and commercial sectors. So that's why we're here today to discuss these issues from a defense and industry perspective. 
to hear their priorities, interests, and what they'd like to see come out of international cooperative efforts at uh, targeting space sustainability. Uh, finally, let me just remind everybody that this conversation is public and on the record. Um, and also to say thank you to our panelists. Uh, we're very privileged to have a knowledgeable panel here to speak to us today. Uh, and last but not least, uh, we're very pleased to be co-hosting this luncheon with our friends at Space Foundation. So I'm going to hand over the mic to Brendan Curry, their Vice President of Washington Operations, to add his welcome. Thank you. Well, uh, good afternoon. It's uh, good to see uh, a pretty well-attended event, considering it's, it's August and it's pretty, pretty freaking gorgeous out today. Uh, those of you who are here for the briefing on the Israel Collier, that's down the hall. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Tiffany, Tiffany did a great job of uh, setting the framework for what we're here to talk about today. Uh, as she said, I'm Brendan Curry, I'm with the Space Foundation. Space Foundation, for those of you who aren't aware, we are a 501c3, we're headquartered in Colorado Springs, we have a small Washington office, and we work with folks from industry, Capitol Hill, the executive branch, our friends and allies of foreign space agencies, I'm working on producing uh, documents and information and data so decision makers like you and your bosses can make informed decisions on space policy. As Tiffany said, uh, space is getting more and more crowded. The dawn of the space age, we had at most a handful of nations involved in space. Now today, we, we've estimated that over 50 nations have some modicum of space activity or space program. And that's not to mention all the commercial activity that keeps growing uh, each year in space. Uh, nations that you and I would consider uh, downright um, or, or developing are taking uh, scarce uh, resources and developing them into having their own indigenous space capabilities. And so that highlights uh, with the emerging nations, it's one thing for the United States or Europe and Russia to uh, conduct itself in a certain way in space, but we also want to look at what, showing how we can lead by example in discussions about codes of conduct and things like that we think are very helpful and beneficial so that up and coming nations who are looking to get involved in space will take a, take a lead from us, the more established space nations, on seeing how they conduct their activities. But with that, um, we've got a great panel for you to hear um, from today. And uh, without further ado, I'll turn it over to Victoria. Hi, everyone. My name is Victoria Sampson. I'm the Washington Office Director for the Secure World Foundation. And I'll be the last person to introduce themselves today. We'll actually go down with the panel soon. Uh, we'll be starting with Sam Black, who is the Director of Policy for the Satellite Industry Association. Then we'll move, be moving on to Jessica Powers, who has a very long title, but she's a Director for Space Policy Engagement at OSD Policy Space. Uh, then we'll be moving on to Peter Marquez, he's our Vice President, the Vice President of Strategy and Planning at Orbital. And then finally ending up with Frank Slazer, the Vice President for um, Space Systems at Aerospace Industries Association. So, we'll have our panels, and feel free to speak from there. If you want to spread out a little bit, you can come up to the podium. And then after that, we'll have Q&A. So, with that, Sam. Great. How's this? Can you hear me? Okay. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank the uh, Space Foundation, Secure, Secure World Foundation, for inviting uh, me here. And it's great to see all of you again. Um, as I said, I'm Sam Black, Director of Policy of the Satellite Industry Association. We're a U.S.-based trade association that represents uh, mostly the com commercial communications satellite industry, so manufacturers, uh, companies with launch interests, satellite operators, ground equipment manufacturers, and uh, service providers. 
Um, so there are three things I'm going to talk about today. One is why commercial matters when you're talking about international space cooperation. The second is some of the things that industry has been investing in in this arena. And the third is some of our uh, priorities moving forward. So why does commercial matter? Well, uh, about two-thirds of all space revenues, and that includes uh, funding uh, by governments, uh, about two-thirds of all space uh, spending is revenues to the commercial communications satellite industry. So we're a huge uh, portion of the money picture. 40% of all operational spacecraft are commercial communications spacecraft. So when you're talking about things like on-orbit space, uh, space safety, if you're not talking uh, about things that include the commercial industry, you're, you're missing a huge portion of it. Um, and just to drive that home, if, if my trade association were a country, we would have more operational spacecraft than any other entity in the world, including the U.S. government. So, again, if you're not talking about the commercial sector, you're missing a big chunk. Uh, the second piece is that uh, the commercial satellite industry is really an inherently international business. Um, a satellite network or a single geocom satellite will often cover multiple regions and, and almost always multiple countries. Uh, so you're facing multiple levels of regulation in different uh, fora in uh, you're also looking at international regulation. Um, the uh, International Tele Telecommunications Union, which is uh, affiliated with the UN, is the place to go for uh, orbital slot allocations and geo and frequency allocations. Uh, so the business has a you know kind of an inherently international foundation. Um, and if you're going to operate a, a satellite, you pretty much have to deal with multiple countries. You're not going to find a situation where you're manufacturing, launching, ensuring. Uh, you have your ground stations, your telemetry tracking and control stations, and your customers all in the same country. It just doesn't happen. Um, so basically, the, the bottom line is that um, you know, international policy is important to the industry, um, and you have to talk to commercial and account for us if you're going to have successful policy efforts. So the second point is, uh, what are we doing on international, and, and you know, what are some of the things we're looking at in terms of safe, safe space operations? Um, industry has a long-standing interest in investing in on-orbit safety and, and addressing uh, radio frequency interference. And when you think about it, this makes perfect sense. If you're going to operate a spacecraft, you have to invest hundreds of millions of dollars up front and then earn the revenue back on the back end to support that. So if you're going to strand some investment up in space without, uh, you know, through a collision or some radio frequency um, problem where you can't use all the transponders on your spacecraft, that's just bad business. So we really do care and we make investments in, uh, in making sure that these assets can be used for their full and planned lifetimes. Um, increasingly, in addition to those individual investments, uh, companies are banding together collectively to take action to protect their interests. Um, this happens through trade groups like SIA and AIA, um, and increasingly in international, uh, the European Satellite Operators Association, CASBA, which is a group in Asia, uh, the Space Industry Association of Australia. So there's definitely a, a proliferation of groups where um, you know, companies come together to kind of advance their common interests in area. <coughs> excuse me, in areas like this one. Um, there are also an increasing number of specialized groups uh, that industry has created. Uh, this includes the Space Data Association, which is uh, you know an organization de uh, devoted to enhancing on-orbit safety. Uh, there's also a group called the Satellite Interference Reduction Group, or SURGE, which looks at um, electromagnetic interference and radio frequency interference. Um, and we also work with governments to enhance safety. We have a forum called the Mission Assurance Working Group in the U.S. where we can come together with DOD and other stakeholders from the U.S. government to talk about issues of common concern. 
So, you know, industry has a long history of looking at the environment that we face and making investments that are tailored to address and enhance that environment. So, uh, what are our priorities moving forward? Well, I'm sitting on the hill, so it'd be inappropriate for me not to mention ITAR. Um, ITAR reform would be the single most effective way of boosting international cooperation, and it's actually something that we could do uh, in the U.S. alone. We don't need a partner to reform our own ITAR regulations. Uh, satellites are the only area that's required by law to be treated as ammunition for the purposes of export, uh, and SIA and AIA and many other people in this room have long been active on, on trying to uh, enact some reforms, and um, you know, we're certainly hopeful that we can get something done in the next couple of years. Um, it would really make it easier for our member companies to trade with close U.S. allies and partners, and it would have a lot of uh, you know, helpful effects on the space industrial base that supports uh, Jessica and others at DOD. So um, you know, this is really a priority for, for us. Um, another uh, group that we're uh, interacting with is the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, which I think Tiffany mentioned or introduction, um, they've been having a dialogue on the long-term sustainability of space activities. And um, SIA has been contributing to this. Uh, we've submitted some, some input at various points in the process. Um, it's definitely an emerging dialogue, but there are topics under discussion that are of interest. Um, I'd say in general, when we look at uh, the things being discussed at COPUS, we're trying to, um, to make sure that these discussions take account for industry's best practices, things that we're already doing that uh, enhance the safety of space operations. Uh, we're trying to avoid burdensome, unnecessary, or confusing regulations. Um, there are, you know, a few cases that I can mention, uh, but I won't right now. Um, and uh, we're also trying to promote a robust dialogue between industry and government. Um, you know, we may take for granted that in the U.S., uh, you know, there's frequently a good dialogue between industry and its government partners, but... You know, we've heard that certain foreign governments refuse to uh, acknowledge the existence of the commercial sector. So um, it's really important for us that uh, whatever guidelines do come out kind of have a role for the commercial sector and make sure that that um, is followed through on at all levels, at the policy level, at the regulatory level, and at the implementation level. Um, so, you know, our hope is that uh, these discussions and others that are going on in the international environment uh, evolve in ways that uh, support those goals. Uh, so that's all for my prepared remarks, and I look forward to your questions. <clears throat> uh, first of all, let me um, say thank you very much to the Space Foundation and uh, to the Secure World Foundation, particularly Victoria and Brendan, for their very gracious invitation to come here and speak to you today. Can you guys hear me? I see some frowns in the background. Um, Victoria asked me to talk to a couple different issues, um, particularly she was very interested in how the Department of Defense is playing in um, the current initiatives, uh, including the code and uh, COPUS and uh, UNGGE, um, and what our perspective is on that. Um, so let me just step back. I think most of the people in this audience probably know this, but um, you know, reiterating, obviously space is very vital to our security and to our economy. But if we look around, we see that the space environment's changed. It's increasingly congested um, with over 22,000 objects that are tracked by U.S. STRATCOM. Um, it's also increasingly contested by an ever-increasing number of man-made threats. And it's increasingly competitive um, as more countries and companies field space capabilities. 
So last year's National Security Space Strategy recognized this challenge, and um, in that strategy we lay out our intent to promote international cooperation and international norms as one means of addressing those uh, challenges. Along those lines, uh, norms of behavior for responsible space operations can enhance national security. And I would emphasize that even this year, the uh, defense strategic guidance, which was issued in January of this year, uh, reinforced those messages from the national security space strategy about the need for international cooperation and, and uh, norms of behavior. So what are some of those? What, so I stated that norms of behavior are for um, uh, responsible space operations can enhance national security. What I would say is that they can bring order to an increasingly congested domain, enabling the Department of Defense to continue deriving benefit from our space capabilities. They can help strengthen international security and stability by minimizing the chances for mishaps, misperceptions, and mistrust. Um, and third, they can dissuade or identify irresponsible or aggressive behavior in an environment that is increasingly contested. Second, uh, promoting responsible behavior is only one element of a holistic strategy. Establishing rules helps to identify rule breakers and can help build international consensus to uphold freedom of access to space. Rules alone do not protect against breakouts or rogue actors. We must also enhance the resilience of our space architecture and prepare to respond if necessary. Third, uh, the United States is actively engaged in several international initiatives to define responsible behavior in space. Uh, first off, as we heard earlier, um, the, the uh, United States, in January of this year, Secretary Clinton made an announcement that we intended to enter into negotiations with the European Union and other spacefaring entities on a proposed international code of conduct. Those negotiations are ongoing. In fact, we expect an experts level meeting in the October timeframe where we will have a chance to uh, further uh, talk about the development of this particular code. Third, or second, excuse me, secondly, um, we are actively participating in the UN's group of governmental experts on space transparency and confidence building measures. We are considering measures to enhance the stability and the security of space. Um, and it's not just our State Department colleagues who um, are participating in this. DOD is actually a member of the delegations, and we are actively involved in those discussions. Third, um, we are also uh, participating in uh, the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, uh, and we are currently developing international best practices and guidelines for safe and sustainable space operations. And given the um, limited time that we have and the fact that we have two other um, panelists, I think I'll leave it at that and I'll look forward to the Q&A. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Can everybody hear me okay? Yeah? Back, either? All right. Can you move a little bit? What's that? Can you move a little bit? you got to push up the button. How about that? I think up is on. Up is on? Yeah. How about that? Ah, yeah. That's good. All right. Two disclaimers. The first one, I'm obviously not an engineer. Um, the, the second one is my comments are my own. I was introduced as an employee of Orbital Sciences, but I'm here uh, speaking on my own accord. Kate, feel free to double-check my timesheet that I don't charge for this. Um, and then uh, my comments, again, are my own, and they do not reflect uh, the views of any presidential campaign with which I may or may not be affiliated. So um, I wanted to, uh, again, thank uh, Tiffany and uh, Victoria for, for inviting me here. I very much appreciate it. Um, my views are sometimes divergent with the, uh, those of the Secure World Foundation. Uh, but I always find our discussions uh, uh, educational and enlightening. I always learn things from you, so I, I very much appreciate the conversations that we have.
um, especially in an environment that's becoming increasingly politically polar, uh, it's nice to have a little corner of our space community that, that can still have adult conversations without retreating to corners, so I appreciate that. Um, uh, as for Brendan, I will follow my grandmother's advice and just not say anything at all. <laughs> I, I love you. Um, so, so with that, let me, um, let me go through, I think uh, my colleagues here, and I think Frank will, will raise some of the similar issues about um, the codes and, and GGE and the LTSSA, which I will just lovingly refer to as the Long-Term Sustainability and not go through the full acronym or the full name because it will confuse me again because I'm a poli-sci major. Um, I barely made it through your program. I don't know how you graduated me. I thank you every day for that. Um, so why are we here? Is it because of the politics that are surrounding the EU Code of Conduct? Is it because of the politics that are surrounding the PPWT? Is it because of the politics that are surrounding the GGE, the Group of Governmental Experts, uh, uh, on, under the first committee? Is it because of long-term sustainability? Those are all kind of symptoms of a larger activity that's ongoing. So we can talk about those things and get emotional about what is the right answer and what's not the right answer, or what's wrong, or, or what is right out of those. But I think all those activities can be boiled down to address a specific need, a need that isn't unique to the U.S., but it's unique. it is shared amongst all spacefaring nations and nations that utilize space. And, and that need um, is, is a need to secure and sustain a major and integral uh, part of U.S. national and economic security space. All these efforts are a means for us to try to secure that major, major uh, important domain. So space has been threatened uh, since, we, since we started going up there. There were political fights between us and the Soviet Union, so um, that it's a, a contested domain is, is nothing new. Uh, the recent NIE, uh, for those of you that have seen it, will point out that yes, things are, are getting worse uh, from a threat perspective, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, but what makes space an interesting security dilemma is that it's an indefensible domain. So the vastness and the, uh, the encumbrance of physics make it an uh, area that you, you can't protect and police all corners of space. So if you can't defend the entire domain, you have to make it more secure and stable and try to make it as predictable as possible. Um, again, because it's a national economic security uh, uh, priority. Now, um, the fact that it's a, a national security and economic priority is nothing new. It's something that uh, was, was alluded to in Eisenhower's policy and has been carried through every presidential policy um, from a you know, bipartisan standpoint uh, since the beginning of the space age. Um, and so what do you have to do to secure that domain? You know, we sit here and talk about all these international efforts. But really it goes back to the classical dime model. You know, it's diplomacy, intelligence, military activities, and economics. All those things play into securing the domain. And so we often forget about when we talk about these things, about the IME part of the dime. We automatically focus on the diplomatic portion, which is part of what we're discussing here. Um, but losing focus on that, it, it comes at a cost. Um, we, we tend to think that, that passive normative security is some sort of paper blanket under which this vital national interest can sleep soundly. And I think there's a lot more effort that needs to be done other than applying paper to something that is so critical to our economic and national security. Um, you know, 
lately you hear things out of the Pentagon that seems that they've even forgotten the M, that they are uh, moving up north uh, into Foggy Bottom, a lot of diplomatic language without a lot of capability behind it. We still need to invest in the capability, still need to invest in the intelligence apparatus, and still need to focus on the, uh, the strong economic points you know, that, that Sam has mentioned about how strong industry and what an important player it is, and I'm sure Frank will address some of those issues as well. Um, so again, you know, normative security is a desired end state. It's a space utopia. You know, all these things that are in these international documents all talk about an end state that we want to get to, but you need the capabilities and the means to achieve that. You can't just write it down and so it, so it, so it is. You have to be able to get there and have the capabilities and the means to do it. So, so what are those means and capabilities, right? In the latest presidential space policy, the need to strengthen stability in space takes a multifaceted approach that covers diplomatic, intelligence, military, and economic goals. Um, and it talks about the foundational capabilities necessary to create a more stable and hopefully predictable environment. So I'm going to um, read just some of the language here about what the president says should be done to strengthen stability in space. Um, strengthen stability in space through domestic and international measures to promote safe and responsible operations in space. I think we can all understand where that's going. Um, improved information collection and sharing for space object collision avoidance. Protection of critical space systems and related infrastructure and strengthening measures to mitigate orbital debris. You have diplomatic, you have some intelligence activities, you have some military activities, and you have some other areas that could be worked on uh, from an economic and industrial standpoint. So those are the goals. The President directed the Secretary of State that if we're going to achieve those goals, you've got some specific jobs to do. And what the Secretary of State was told to do was to demonstrate U.S. leadership in space-related fora and activities to reassure allies of U.S. commitments to collective self-defense identify areas of mutual interest and benefit, and promote U.S. commercial space regulations, and encourage interoperability with those regulations. Furthermore, he told the Secretary of State to lead in the enhancement of security, stability, and responsible behavior in space, and to facilitate new market opportunities for U.S. commercial space capabilities and services. And there's a, more of a list. But again, what the President directs the Secretary of State to do is focus on diplomatic efforts that, again, enhance our economic uh, security and can help enhance our national security. So the Secretary of Defense has a list of activities that uh, I won't go through here because it's a little bit lengthy, but if you go back to national space policy, I think it's pages 13 and 14, there's a list there of what the Secretary of Defense is told to go do. I'd suggest you go take a look at that and just kind of give yourself a little checklist and see how we're doing on some of those activities. But let's go back to the State Department responsibilities. The Bush administration, uh, which, you know, full disclosure, I was there at the tail end, uh, and was in charge of implementing space policy, um, was hammered by the space community for being obstructionist and not taking any particular stance other than saying no in the international community when it came to uh, things like the PPWT or code of conduct, right? And, um, and that, I think that's an appropriate knock. I mean, I have a three-year-old. Her favorite thing to say to me is no. It doesn't take too much work to say no, right? Um, so we were kind of absent from the international community, and we let things be defined by other players, and that's not a good place to be. Um, but on the other hand, saying yes to everything isn't really leadership either. So just raising your hand and following whatever tour group happens to show up in Geneva isn't really leadership either. So I have a one-year-old. She can say yes, but she really doesn't know what she's saying. So I'm between my three-year-old and my one-year-old, I get a yes and no all day, and I never get anything done. Which kind of sounds like the UN, but that's for so, so let, you know, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time going through what some of those, uh, those tours of Geneva look like. Uh, I think 
Uh, Secure World Foundation has done a very, very good job on their website of doing the fact sheets. As a matter of fact, they're, they're in your packets here that go through the GGE and long-term sustainability and the code. So I, I would uh, I recommend you read those. It's a very, very good assessment of, of the background of the material and where we sit on those. Um, but just some, some uh, quick overviews of, of uh, those three main activities. You know, they're, sometimes they're lovingly referred to by people in government as a three-ring circus. I would say at least the three-ring circus has intersecting circles, and some of these don't really have intersecting circles. Uh, but the GGE, um, it's under the first committee. It's got the 15 members. It's the usual P5 plus, uh, plus 10 more. Um, and it's chaired by, uh, by Viktor Vasiliev. So, yeah. so, yes. so Viktor, uh, Russian, uh, very, very smart guy. I've had the pleasure of meeting him. But, um, you know, there's a joke about Rudy Giuliani. It's, you know, anywhere in a sentence, 911 is going to show up, right? And it's the same thing with Victor. Anytime you talk to Victor, PPWT is going to show up, right? So it's, it's always PPWT, PPWT, PPWT. So he's chairing the GGE. I'm not quite sure what's going to come out of it, but I'll bet you PPWT will be somewhere in the sentence. Um, the next item, the uh, LTSSA, Long-Term Sustainability, that's under the uh, fourth committee, um, under Cobuis. And this one actually I, I, I think holds a lot of promise. It is a technical bottoms-up approach, involves a variety of governments, involves industry. State Department here has been very, very good about reaching out to industry on some of the working groups involved with this. It takes a very technical bottoms-up approach to what uh, one, what are you doing now? What would you like to have happen in the environment? What are the effects of those? How does it help industry? How does it hurt industry? How does it hurt manufacturers? How does it help or hurt service providers? It's a very, very good approach. Uh, the person running that is Peter Martinez and uh, from South Africa. And uh, I don't know Peter, but I know him by reputation. I've interacted with him a few times. Very, very, very good and capable man uh, and is very well respected in the community. So I think there's some promise in the uh, long-term sustainability. Now, the code of conduct, um, I, I, I don't even know where, where to go with that. Um, there was a meeting in October, and I made, the, uh, I made the assumption that it was part of a UN meeting because it's being held in New York. It turns out that it's not part of a UN meeting. It's being held elsewhere at the same time. Uh, it's an open uh, meeting. Anybody who's a UN member can show up at the meeting, but it's an ad hoc meeting, not really part of the UN. So pretty much anybody who wants to walk across the street from the UN headquarters and enjoy some free pastries and coffee can go in and sit in this. This really is not going anywhere. Okay, it's not going anywhere. Um, you know, what what I would say is that um, I will use the, the great space philosopher C3PO in this description of the UN uh, code or the EU code of conduct. C3PO uh, describing the Sarlacc says. In his belly, you will find a new definition of pain and suffering as you are solely digested over a thousand years. Um, with where the EU code is, I think the definition of Sarlacc is, uh, is a pretty good one. Um, and it's not, it's not because there's not good statements and good value in what's in the EU code of conduct. It's just it's in the process now, and that process has no daylight at the end of it. So we can talk about it all we want, but the reality is it's pretty much done for. Um, there was an article that was put out over the weekend about uh, the EU code and how it pre pre uh, presents a good opportunity for a, a salt-like arrangement. I, I disagree with the premise of that, but if anything, all it did was just confirm the fears of, of some that, uh, that the code of conduct was the first step down the slippery slope of arms control. 
Um, so I'm not quite sure that's what the author intended, but he confirmed a lot of fears, whether those are founded or unfounded fears. Uh, the article also had a nice, very good slide at the end of Republicans as comparing their position to that of a human rights violating communist regime in China. So uh, not quite sure it was a very helpful article. But anyway, so, so that's the EU code. Again, long-term sustainability, I think there's a great, great promise there. It takes a bottom-up approach run by a very good, well-respected person and is based in empirical data and fact-finding and has a very good discovery period. But at the end of all of this, the U.S. still has to lead. The president directed you to lead, you have to lead, and you have to start coming up with some direction. Saying no to everything isn't a good position, and saying yes to everything isn't a good position. Right? Change is easy, leadership is very hard. So the U.S. has to lead. Um, now, I'm not going to put all this on the executive branch. You know, I, I, the guys at state, I know them, they're very, very good guys. They're trying their best, they're not trying to give away U.S. security interests. Um, they're doing the best with the hand that they're dealt. I think that there could be some help from the Hill as well. You know, what are those interests? As part of looking at the full dime, are there things in the defense appropriations where we could beef up U.S. security? Not, not space control-like activities, although situational awareness is under space control, but, but things that enhance the awareness of the environment, that contribute to attribution, uh, that contribute to partnership capacity building. There are things that could be done there. So the solution lies in developing a U.S. plan, um, and, uh, and, and a serious plan that has to be rooted in our national interests of economic and security uh, issues. Now, whether it's done uh, through TCBMs or done multilaterally through voluntary guidelines rooted in strong analysis and through a technical research, that, that's fine. I mean, we can go down those paths, but we have to take a lead and we have to start doing the serious, serious research that's involved in doing these things. You know, it, doing this isn't about piling up briefing charts with feel-good statements, alliterative bumper stickers, no analysis other than logically flawed beliefs about international security theory or corruptions of uh, basic deterrence theory, or embracing historically invalidated concepts like deterrence through entanglement. Um, and then making comments about red lines and declaratory policy without actually having the capability to back it up is nothing but dangerous. So we need to start developing capabilities as well as developing the international constructs in which to increase our economic and national security. Um, it's a business that requires leadership, strong cooperation through the executive and legislative branches. It's about ensuring that one of our most critical and national economic security interests, space, is, is held secure and able to be utilized by the U.S. for a long time coming. And this is about the most serious business you can be in, and it requires a serious, serious leadership role from the U.S. So with that, I will leave it for him. Thank you. Let's see. Here can you hear me okay? I guess it looks like. Okay. So first of all, thank you to both foundations. Uh, I won't go through that litany too much, but I appreciate the opportunity to have this discussion here today. I think it's, a, it, it's good while everyone is, is uh, all the bosses are on the road uh, back home in the districts to have the opportunity to talk to the staff to, and, and uh, really have a little dialogue here. I won't repeat a lot of uh, positions uh, that AIA has because they're coincident with SIA. We've got an industry perspective out there that is, I think is generally a consensus. We do have some, some differences in areas, but in general, we work together on behalf of the industry. It's a very vibrant, active, and lively industry that's uh, world-leading, and we hope to keep it that way. Uh, I would also echo uh, Sam's comments earlier regarding ITAR. Uh, I'm a little more optimistic. I'm still holding out the possibility of getting something done this year, but I'm a little bit optimistic, as I said. Uh, I'd, also, I'd also raise the, uh, the issue of um, launch indemnification. Uh, we in this country have a unique position right now. There are a number of companies 
putting in private capital, sometimes augmented by government, sometimes just private capital on their own, uh, developing new launch capabilities out there. And we will cooperate in allowing other countries to continue to eat our lunch internationally if we don't do some simple steps that cost the government nothing, like restoring the indemnification provisions that have been in place since 1986. And so I'd encourage us to all try to make that happen uh, as soon as, as possible, because the indemnification uh, capability goes away at the end of this calendar year. A couple other points, I guess, we as an association, relative to some of uh, Peter's comments on the uh, code of conduct, we've not taken a position on a code of conduct. It, it's really kind of a government deal. We tend to work for the government. What we like to try to do is, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're aware that the, the agreements the government comes up with impact businesses, and we want to encourage the administration or any administration uh, to work with industry, keep us informed, and also keep us involved of, of their efforts in this area. I must say that we've had some good relations so far with, with DOD in this regard and, and with the State Department. Uh, we have been meeting with government officials. We've also been trying to work on uh, space sustainability through the UN mechanism, the COPUMIS. Uh, Peter was a little bit generous, I think, uh, a thousand years. I don't know. When I hear about the COPUMIS process, glacial seems like uh, speedy by comparison. But, uh, you know, and meanwhile, innovation is happening and investment is happening and companies are making things happen. And the nice thing is, is that uh, there's been some proven successes in the past and some paths forward, I think, that uh, can still have progress going even while governments try to figure out what they're doing. Um, we, we recognize the need to address the growing threat of space debris in particular. And we believe that some of this can be done through voluntary consensus-based measures, oftentimes with industry-to-industry -industry involvement. A good example of that would be some standards set a number of years ago for launch vehicles. Uh, back in the early days of the space shuttle, some of you may recall there were some incidents where, for instance, paint flecks and things like that that came off of uh, launch vehicles uh, actually caused uh, pitting on the windows of the space shuttle. When you got something that small going at 16,000, 17,000 miles per hour, that uh, caused a little bit of damage. Well, there, there was a real effort in the 90s as new launch vehicles such as the Atlas and Deltas uh, were being designed to incorporate designs that would not tend to do things like blow up, which some upper stages used to do back in the early 80s and late 70s time because these debris clouds were having an impact on operational spacecraft. Now we have designs for the launch vehicles that don't have that same sort of a problem or that have active venting or we have, you know, approaches to mitigate potential problems in space. And again, a lot of this was developed without a big treaty, without a big governmental involvement, just by the players in the industry and different government involvements, uh, you know, basically making it happen through standards. Uh, we also think things like this could happen in space, uh, low-orbit debris uh, building practices, uh, deorbit practices, uh, putting things up in higher orbits, where you know, as already done in the commercial satellite industry, so they get out of the way, essentially. We caution that any proposed measures for space debris mitigation and removal systems should be technically feasible and also cost-effective, so as to increase their chances of successful implementation. We see as the international need for uh, space cooperation on, on traffic increasing due to the rapid growth of international space capabilities, commercial uses of outer space and debris, AIA believes that international agreements should not preclude innovative technological innovation, which is required for future space capabilities. This is still an area that's evolving and evolving very rapidly. I mentioned earlier the fact we have a number of new launch vehicle families um, under development and actually starting to be used right now in the United States. Uh, even now, uh, there's other uh, technologies being looked at for spacecraft applications, nanosats, for instance, uh, possibly using formation flying of small nanosats to provide 
commercial, academic, or national security capability. So as you come up with rules and regulations of what you're going to do in space, you've got to just not stay with the current architecture of how things are done. That is changing rapidly. We don't want to preclude the United States maintaining its leadership uh, by, by constraining its ability to innovate. There's also been concerns, I think, um, I think they kind of mirror the big picture we've got here, which is uh, Section 913 of the House passed National Defense Authorization Act that prohibit funds from being used by, for DOD or intelligence international agreements on international space activities unless some agreement is ratified by the Senate or authorized by statute. Um, I think one of the things I want to try to bring up here that maybe no one's addressed so far was that for space industry to survive, to thrive, stable policies are needed. Stable policies have been the hallmark of U.S. government activity in this area for decades, and industry is not going to invest where policies are in flux and investments are at risk. There are too many opportunities to invest. There are other places that money can go, including overseas. For this reason, AIA hopes that the White House and Congress will seek to develop a consensus in this area. Steps by Congress that would preclude the administration from acting or steps by an administration that would do an end run around Congress will not help in developing this consensus and the stability that's needed for investment. The mutual distrust in this policy area mirrors the division in our government overall. And as with the threat of sequestration, you know somebody couldn't, couldn't hear from AIA without bringing up sequestration, or tax again, they threaten to put U.S. industry at a competitive disadvantage in the international commercial marketplace and risk our leadership in space. Ultimately, a safe space environment and a stable policy consensus domestically allows our industrial base to thrive in critical uh, areas, especially as our commercial spaceflight industry continues to grow and to innovate. Okay, well that leaves us a good time for Q&A. Um, I open up to the floor and we just ask that you identify yourself with your affiliation. <coughs> Questions? Anything? Okay, well I have a question. Um, talking about the idea for um, international processes for developing norms of behavior, I'm wondering if the panel could discuss, you know, what they think the benefit is. is it, for our, their various organizations to give input to that sort of thing, just in terms of trying to help shape the norms of behavior so it's to the United States' benefit. Is it better just to stand aside and let other countries take the lead in developing these international norms, at which point we have zero input? Or is it better to try and mitigate that and make sure that these norms are following what the United States already does? So, anyone in the crowd? I guess I'll, 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 my perspective on this is, as, as I stated a little while ago, is that we, we need to be involved. We need to make sure that, that rules don't get set up, which, which put us at a disadvantage, and commercially, but also for national security purposes. So I don't, I don't think that lead, follow, or get out of the way, that uh, get out of the way is, is a viable position for the nation that arguably leads in space in all domains. Um. I think what I would say is that um, the U.S. is continuing to lead by example um, with best practices, uh, debris mitigation standards, uh, notifications, and sharing space situational awareness data. Um, and specifically from the Department of Defense, um, we're actively involved in, in helping to shape those practices and those norms of behavior um, for the U.S. government. I was wondering if you could, uh, as the negotiations move forward towards a potential code of conduct, I was wondering if you could shed any light on some possible uh, areas where there's disagreement over. 
as those negotiations move forward. Uh, right now, because we have not yet had any official negotiations, I'm not in a position to share with you any differences of opinion. We have looked at the code, and we are prepared to go in. Um, the State Department will be the lead, and DOD will be part of that delegation to talk with the EU and other uh, spacefaring entities who will participate in the experts-level uh, meeting uh, that will convene in the October time frame. Do, do you have any inkling, as far as any discussion whatsoever, do you have any inkling on what could be what? <clears throat> could, uh, you know, potentially be a source of disagreement at all? Well, what I would say is that, you know, the code is focused on behavior. Uh, it's not focused on capabilities. Um, we think it's in our national security interest. We think that it, it we're setting um, a standard of behavior. Um, if we can uh, subscribe to a code, obviously we're not going to subscribe to any code until we know that it's in our, you know, we've seen the final version and what it looks like and it's going to be in our national security interest. Um, as part of that, we are in conversation with a variety of spacefaring entities um, and nations, um, but at this point, those conversations have been one-off, and we have not had any um, larger public discussion where we can talk about what those differences might be. Thank you. Other questions? Um, this question is for Peter Marquez. Um, you talked about. Oh, I'm sorry, and I'm not going to get a little bit of ID. Thank sorry you. about that. Um, you talked about ways and means and investing capabilities. Um, does that include investing in Earth observation systems that not only contribute to intelligence and defense, but also to critical weather forecasts and that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I would completely agree. I think it's all yeah, right. I, I would completely agree that that's, that's an area of investment. Um, whether it's co-investment in Earth observation systems, you know, let's just take a, an example. You could co-invest in uh, information gathering system with Japan, you know, so that if there was, God forbid, another event like occurred before, you could help with recovery and disaster relief. I think that is a, an incredible asset to have, uh, so I wouldn't limit it to just, you know, pure intelligence gathering capability. Um, Sam and Frank both emphasized the importance of ITAR reform, had different sort of, you know, degrees of optimism about getting something through this year. I wondered if you could both elaborate on what you think the prospects are of getting the Senate to pass some sort of language that's passed through the House and what the obstacles are to passage. I can start if you want to go ahead. <coughs> Well, I wouldn't say, um, I think, you know, as Frank mentioned, we work really closely together on this. Um, I wouldn't call it um, differences and levels of optimism. Um, I just say, you know, there's uncertainty, right? Um, it's an election year. You know, we understand that the environment's pretty tense. Um, we think that this is a, a common sense reform. We think that it has broad bipartisan support. Um, so, you know, we're going to work really hard to make sure it gets done this year, and if it doesn't get done this year, then we're going to work really hard to make sure it gets done next year and, you know, until it gets done. Um, all right, I'll just leave it at that, Frank. Yeah, I guess um, when I came to AIA last year um, and I came to my office and I was unpacking some boxes of materials from back when I was in the corporate world and I used to be an AIA member company representative, I was at the same time putting together my strategic plan inputs for this year, and I realized that in 2002, 10 years ago, one of our top 10 priorities was ITAR reform. So the fact that we've got it through at least the House gives me unprecedented optimism <laughs> in the last 10 years. 
And the fact that we still have almost, what, four months uh, before the end of the calendar year gives me some uh, hope that this will come, come true. I don't know if we'll make it through this year. Obviously, we're working at it very diligently. SIA is also a number of the member companies are. Uh, I hope we can. Uh, and if not, I hope we can build on what's been accomplished so far this year, uh, next year, to, to make it happen. But it's all, it's all context, I guess. Yeah, and I'd say just the trend lines here are pretty positive. Yeah. So last session of Congress, um, there was language in the uh, State Department reauthorization bill that passed the House. That bill wasn't taken up by the Senate. This year, we've had standalone legislation introduced in the House this past November. We've had standalone uh, legislation introduced in the Senate for the first time in a long time. Uh, that was earlier this year. And it's also passed the House twice, in the Defense Authorization Bill and in the State Department Authorization Bill. And, and i, and I got to get one key other point here is circumstances has changed. Ten years ago, we weren't facing a defense budget that was on the decline. Here we already have. The question is how much further may it go down if sequestration and other cuts are not avoided. And at the same time, we've got an industry that is, you know, got potential out there to offset that loss of government demand with commercial opportunities and preserving the industrial base for our national security as well, for our, as, well as for our commercial industry. So the, the market has changed, if you will, as well as the, as well as the politics. Can you jump in other questions? Hi, my name is Ryan Noble. I'm a law school graduate currently seeking an employer to affiliate with. <laughs> <laughs> my question is for Peter Marquez. If the code of conduct is the SARLAC, is there something perhaps more terrifying that would step into its place to fill that void of regulation on orbit? For example, say FAA gaining authority over orbital activities. Um, the only one that causes me more concern is the PPWT, but um, just because it's unverifiable and unenforceable, and it, it's ridiculous. But but it doesn't scare me as much because a Sarlacc you have a chance of tripping into. Uh, the PPWT is just uh, there's nothing to it. So so if, if if both could exist and both could be implemented, I would fear the PPWT even more. But uh, this is just an academic conversation because neither of the mythical Star Wars beasts occur. Or live so, um, but yeah. So, uh, yeah. The effects of PPWT would be far worse. I guess so. To bring it back to reality, do you think that vacuum of regulation for orbital debris is sustainable if we don't have an international agreement that the United States is going to regulate or legislate domestically, or that we can just continue <clears throat> well, with the status quo? Yeah, we, we. I mean, the U.S. actually has very, very good debris mitigation standards in place that that are uh, exemplary in the world, and we do a very good job of maintaining those those uh, those standards. Um, so on the issue of debris, uh, I wouldn't say that a vacuum exists um, uh, in policy and international uh, um, you know, treaties or codes. Uh, I'd say a, a uniform adherence or recognition of what the U.S. does may be more appropriate. But uh, you know, I know the guys who work debris mitigation, and it's a very technical endeavor, and they do a very good job internationally working those things. So for debris, I actually have less of a concern. Is it a problem? Yeah, but are smart guys working on it at a very pragmatic level? Absolutely, and that, that gives me nice warm fuzzies. Yeah. Well, actually, I have a, a couple of questions for the industry people on this panel. Um, Sam, you brought up the idea of uh, on-road safety, ARP interference, and Frank, you talked about the need to have, I guess, manufacturers involved in the discussion to make sure that spacecraft are being designed in a proper way so that you have on-road on safety. I'm wondering, what sort of international approach could the United States take that would help 
your efforts help your, your the people in your industries do that sort of thing, to make sure that their investment is protected over the long term. Is this something that, for example, you know, do we need to have our in our our domestic regulations exported? You know, do we need to proliferate these sort of things, or is there any particular agency that would be helpful? You know, what what could we do to make your lives easier? You know, I I think it really comes back to um, the idea that first of all, involvement, involvement with industry, so that there's an understanding by government of the. Uh, current state-of-the-art and, and opportunities on the horizon. We were talking a little bit before the uh, session started, Jessica and I, regarding uh, Ambassador Schulte, who's, uh, so many of you know, is a very capable individual, came out of the nuclear disarmament area, came out of NATO, went through a space assignment and moved on to other places. We've got people in the industry do this their entire careers. So the ability for somebody, a very capable civil servant such as Ambassador Schulte, to tie in with the subject matter experts with industry is something that ought not to be passed up. And again, uh, I think DOD has been doing a good job of working with us so far, just encouraging that to happen in the future because really the subject matter expertise really does matter here. This, this is an evolving area, rapidly evolving area that we want to, uh, want to keep ahead of. Yeah, I, just in general terms, um, I think industry is um, interested in, in regulatory regimes that are transparent, that are predictable, um, you know, that are under, understandable, they have clear processes, they have clear inputs and outputs, they have opportunities for industry to provide input. Um, and I think, um, you know, there are a ton of different regulatory regimes out there for, you know, every different country has rules about how, you know, ground stations has to be, have to be licensed and, you know, where you have to go to get that license. So. Um, you know, if, if we could, um, I would just say that steps that, um, that make re regulatory regimes more predictable and transparent and help protect, uh, help protect investments are, are positive ones. Any questions for my colleagues? Okay. Well, any other questions for the group? We've been talking about uh, sharing SSA data and doing things uh, for years. You mentioned the uh, rapid pace of the COPUIS uh, negotiations. Um, what concrete things can the United States do to make this move more quickly? Aside from saying we're committed to doing it. To making it. To, to achieving uh, some sort of result, either in COPUIS or uh, in some international forum of some sort. Take your pick. Right. So, so concrete steps that we can, I just want to make sure I understand the question. So concrete steps that we can take to promote to the development of more norms specifically? Are you looking, I'm, I'm just trying to clarify. Whichever way you think would work best. <laughs> I'm going to leave it open for you. Well, I, I do would, think that. The norms work best. I think norms is a key part. We want to have, I mean, if you establish norms, you're establishing um, what the rules of the road are, what, what is standard behavior. And then when you know, then you know when people aren't abiding by uh, norms of behavior. Um, more concrete examples, um, I mean, first of all, I would look at the code. Um, I think that by continuing to have those discussions with these countries, we could achieve a code of conduct um, and, you know, 
depending on what it looks like at the end of it, but if it's something that enhances our national security and we can sign up to it, already we've laid out um, expected behavior. So, I mean, that is, I think, a concrete example. We just have yet to get there. Nothing moves fast. That's Are there any concrete steps we can take to move things along? Uh, diplomatic offerings? Uh... Well, I mean, we are actually actively participating in talking to all of these different players um, and making sure that uh, they are participating in the dialogue. I think that will have a result when we will come together in October. We'll see who will, who will participate and what their concerns are, going back to the question that Titus had about what concerns will come out of those discussions. And that's where we'll be, have an opportunity to continue to consult. So we got to see. Yes. Let me also suggest a, uh, something relative to industry in, in this regard, and, and it's not going to address the full scope of what the code or similar provisions might cover, but uh, at least with industry and the aviation industry, there's a, a history of the International, I remember this name, International Coordinating Council of Aerospace Industries Association, which is basically, yeah, right, that's pretty good, huh? <laughs> basically, AIA and its sister organizations around the world have for years done this in aviation to try to develop standards for safety and, and uh, have, have had a lot of success. And, and we're starting to have some of those entreaties now uh, in the space arena, and that may yet lead to a, a kind of a private sector parallel effort that governments can then incorporate later when they get around to finally uh, enacting something. Coach, when you come together in October, what will you talk about? Can you talk about, because it's a complex issue, what aspect will you start to... Uh, to work on and can you lay out a timeline or some sort of? He's going to keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, since this will be the first meeting of all the experts coming together, I'm, I'm sure much of it will be um, trying to understand the different perspectives of the countries involved with regards to the code. I mean, specifically, I should say, when I'm talking about an experts level meeting coming together. I'm talking specifically about the code of conduct. I'm not talking about the ongoing discussions at Copius or the ongoing discussions at, at the group of government experts. And so that will be the opportunity to kind of hear those first um, inputs. Um, that is when the different countries will come to the table with their particular edits um, of the um, existing um, code, which was released in um, which the EU released in June of this year. Um, the current version, and from that, uh, folks will come together. Now, according to the EU, their, their timeline is to try to get to the end of 2013 with a, a, a potential code that could then be put out for folks to, uh, to subscribe to. Um, you know, I think that is, um, we'll, we will certainly work on that. I'm not sure if we will get there in quite that amount of time, but um, certainly we're going to be supportive of that effort. Well, um, any last thoughts from our panel? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, please join me in thanking this panel, and I appreciate you guys giving up your lovely.